continuing our study of the Beatitudes as they're known uh, from Matthew chapter 5. We'll take our reading uh, from Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 and we'll take our time to read through all of the Beatitudes and then with one extra verse that comes on a little later that I think the Lord used to, to bring a section of his thinking and his teaching to a bit of a conclusion before he moves on to other matters. So let's read Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this week's subject is this one. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Eight characteristics listed there. And then a final blessing in a sense is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, with your Bibles still open, look down to verse 20. In verse 20 the Lord Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've already considered how chapter 4 finishes with the Lord Jesus coming out and beginning to preach. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as it's called. So it's the good news about the kingdom, and it's the kingdom that God rules over, that people are to submit themselves to. But he comes out preaching, and there's an aspect of a reaction that's necessary in each person to participate in that kingdom and it is repentance, repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your grasp is the sense of it and the Lord Jesus is saying you repent of who you are and believe in who I am and who God is revealing me to be and step in to the blessings of being numbered with those who are in the kingdom of God. I was reading earlier this morning in Acts how Peter was recounting his encounter with Cornelius and his household and how Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and his household came to faith whenever Peter preached the good news about Jesus and the kingdom to them. And as Peter was recounting it to the people back in Jerusalem, they said, this is wonderful that God has granted repentance to the Gentiles as well. You know, repentance is something that God gives to someone who truly understands their predicament. Their sinfulness before him as a holy God. And their inability and their lostness to do anything about it for themselves. Then God is the one who grants repentance. And turns that person to see the glory of who the Lord Jesus is. And to embrace him as saviour and lord. And then to know the life that God gives which is described as the eternal life. Which is to know him through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
by the help of the indwelling spirit, that's what life in God's kingdom is all about. It begins with repentance that is granted by God. I just want to say this, that I'm persuaded that the kingdom of heaven, as it's referred to in Matthew's gospel, is synonymous with the kingdom of God. This is just a little side thing. I just point you to Matthew 19, uh, just if you're taking notes, in verses 23 and 24, where the Lord uses both terms uh, to say the same thing in two different ways. I think that might be a clincher to help us to see that the kingdom that is being described here is the kingdom that God rules over, that people would submit themselves to and enjoy his rule in their lives, in everything that they do. So the introduction to this, that the Lord Jesus had begun his preaching that says you have to repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. It's good news to enjoy the kingdom. That's the starting point. And he gathers his disciples to him and this crowd that's there listening in as well. So the teaching is primarily for those who have already started on their path of belief in who the Lord Jesus is. But others that are listening in here. This instruction from the Lord. I must say this, the Beatitudes that we read from verse 3 onwards and the characteristics that are described here are not the means of entrance into the kingdom, but they are the effects of being in the kingdom. There's a big difference. People can take the Beatitudes and see, well, if I put these into practice with all of my own energy, and I characterize what I understand these to be, then I'll have a place in God's kingdom. That's not what the Lord is teaching, because that would be contrary to all of Scripture. He's saying that only those who've repented and believed can then live out this sort of life in the kingdom, because by God's help, they're able to generate this sort of characteristic, multiplied eight times here. And multiplied many other times as well as is described in the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. The reason I read verse 20 is that the Lord seems to conclude this little section opening salvo in a sense of his sermon on the mount. He concludes it by saying if your righteousness all of you that are listening is not greater than the Pharisees who were the traditionalists and the purists and the teachers of the law the people who knew the law inside out and therefore would would do their best to honour every aspect of the law of God. Unless your righteousness surpasses that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was saying that you can't achieve a righteousness on your own. You must rely on the grace of God and turn to him in repentance from your sinful ways and embrace the saviour provided so that you might have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember John chapter 3 when the Lord Jesus has his interaction with Nicodemus? He says, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Being born again is a work of God that comes when he grants that repentance and the faith to believe in the Savior and the regeneration occurs, a new life comes. And these characteristics that the Lord teaches here to his disciples are those that then are generated by the work of God in a transformed life you know it links with Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33 where God through the prophet had said to Israel about a future day from then and Jeremiah was prophesying around about 600 to 
yeah, 600 BC, let's say. And he was prophesying and the Lord said to him, I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. He was speaking about a future day. The people of Israel had wandered so far from the law that Moses had brought down from Sinai, from the mountain. Here was the, the man who was the mouthpiece of God who came down with the law. And the people couldn't keep it. So God had to do something else. And he did that in the person of the Lord Jesus, the one who came from heaven to earth. And here he is in the mountain, almost like Moses. And he's giving instruction to explain what the law is all about. But that the way to live that law out is only by the power of God that comes from a regenerated life. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. That's what happens when someone is born again. That God does a work to transform their lives from the inside out because he writes their law, his law, in their hearts. Because the Spirit of God himself comes to live in us. Some people can look at this and can try and be the poor in spirit or the people who mourn for their sin or those who are meek. And we'll get on to what that means in a moment. And they can try and generate it for themselves and it can look, it can look good. But it's fake fruit. I still chuckle at the bowl of plastic apples that some of you know we have in our kitchen. One of them has a teeth mark in it. Because my dad lifted it thinking it was a proper apple and really went for a good bite and nearly lost all of his teeth. It was fake. It looks really good, but it's not the real thing. The real thing is that which is generated from the inside by the power of God, by his spirit. We're not to be fakers, but to be those that show genuine fruit. The fruit that comes from being born again and the work of God that begins in us. What the Lord Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that open it is that those who are in the kingdom are to live lives that are countercultural against everything that the world and the culture around us will put to us all the time. It describes what life should look like for those that are subjects of the King, God Himself. Our world says to us, assert yourself, stand up for yourself. Be proud of yourself, elevate yourself, defend yourself, avenge yourself, serve yourself, promote yourself. Jesus, in these Beatitudes, turns that entirely on its head. Because he's showing that what is really important is the life that's lived under the authority and the joy of who God is. And we don't need to do any of that because God is for us. Who can be against us? We live differently. To be a happy people. The word blessed in the Greek is makarios. And it's used to signify the, the happiness that comes from being in a set of circumstances that are really good. It's the happiness that comes from being in a good situation or position. Enjoying prosperity and the joy that comes with that. That's what the word is getting at. So the Lord is using that and says you to be happy people. You kingdom subjects. Those who honour God as king. You're to be happy people. Happy contentedness in the life that God has brought you into. Whatever we might face. Remembering that God who is sovereign over all may have his purposes in bringing us into difficult times. And I think for Christians we must never forget that those difficult times are almost guaranteed. Because it is through them that we learn more 
than we will learn through the good times. It's through the times of difficulty and struggle and suffering that we probably come away with more of an understanding of what it means to live like Christ than we do when everything is going swimmingly. So happy are the people who are poor in spirit, a genuine poverty before God that then is met by all of the riches of God. Those who mourn over their sin, who want to live a life of righteousness and can only do so by the power of God. Those happy people who are gentle, who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. Notice that there's a present reality of the kingdom to be experienced as well as a future aspect in the Beatitudes. Let's just work through this very quickly. Um, Jesus says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a present reality, he says. If you've come to the point of recognizing your absolute poverty before God and your inability to save yourself and make yourself right with God and you're relying absolutely on God and his saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring you into relationship with him, then yours is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You're there. Verse 10, the concluding one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of God. It's like bookends of first number one and number eight of the Beatitudes. They're like bookends. They then say that you have a place in the kingdom. You're going to be persecuted because you are living a countercultural life. And all of the ones that are in the middle, the remaining six, the tense changes to be a future tense. They will be comforted. They will inherit. They will be satisfied. It tells us that there is a reality of the kingdom that is to be enjoyed now as we live this life under the rule of God. As we recognize that without God we have nothing but with God we have everything. But yet that God has promised that there is more to follow. Always more to follow. He's promised it and it's coming. And to live out the qualities and the characteristics of those who live in God's kingdom. Will mean that there is yet more to come. That's why the Lord speaks of reward. That's not something we shy away from as Christians and say, well, no, no, we can't be talking about reward for how we live. Now, this is reward for those who bow themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ, own him as king, and are prepared to live his way and receive the life that God gives through him. Then God says, you're going to be rewarded when you live that life. It's not reward that you live to achieve it. You're not achieving your salvation by the way you live. God's given it to you, and now he says you live it. And there's reward in this life and in the life to come. So just notice that about a present reality. The book ends, numbers 1 and 8. And then the 6 in between. The promise of even greater things to come. And that brings us particularly to blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Happy are the meek, the gentle, the humble, the tender hearted. It's the opposite of violence and vengeance. You know, it's really self-control, meekness, isn't it? And that's a fruit of the Spirit. Genuine fruit of the Spirit is self-control. A person whose spirit is so under control that in their interactions with others, whoever they may be, they're gentle and compassionate and tender-hearted. That's the sense of the word that is used here. It's meek, but it's not weak. 
These are people who have strong convictions and have a strength of character. It means that they don't bend, but they stand up for what is right and true as God declares it in his kingdom. And they're not prepared to step away from that, but they will be gentle in how they live that out and how they speak of it. Of course, we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, meekness also, I think, points us to the absence of pretension. Now, maybe it's just me, but I, I think you're all afflicted with this as well. We all like to be liked. And sometimes there might be pretension that comes in that's not really genuinely who, you are, who we are. I actually would hate it for you to see inside my mind and my heart. But what you see is, in many ways, a pretension. But meekness is the removal of that because we realise that God has transformed us and is transforming us from the inside and he's sovereign over all circumstances. So why get violent and aggressive and so on? We'd be tender-hearted, those subjects of the king who live like him in this world. A couple of the Greek dictionaries, really good helps on this, looking at the word. One of them says, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And the other one I thought was really good because it, it tells you how the word was used in secular Greek at the time in various settings. It spoke of things being mild. Think of about a curry, mild curry. It spoke of uh, animals being tame or people being gentle or pleasant. I think the tame animals is a good one. It's good when the dog is tame and well trained. You can trust it and you can guess what it's going to do. Those brutes of dogs that the owners have never spent any time training are an absolutely disastrous thing to be feared because you feel they could take an arm or something off you at any point. You get the distinction, don't you? It's tame of an animal, but it's something that is under control. Self-control is not under our own control. It's under the control of the one who owns us, which is God himself. Now, we have to be careful with this matter of meekness because some of us, I think, are naturally, in our temperament, uh, more tender-hearted than others. And we might think that because we are there already, that, uh, well, must be in the kingdom. Not sure about that. Some of us would go after the spider um, that appears in the kitchen or the bathroom, whatever, and would flail around trying to beat its brains out. Whereas others will go around and they'll gather it up and they might drive it to the local nature reserve or whatever it is. You, you know, that, that we are like that. Some of us are one end or the other. But let's not kid ourselves that any natural um, tendency or temperament that we might have somehow proves that we are in the kingdom. It is something that God will work in us, whatever our character that comes from that transformed, born-again life. That means that those who have a natural temperament that way will be ever gentle. But those who aren't will probably see a gentleness that appears more so over time. The meekness and gentleness of Christ is how Paul uh, describes his appeal to the Church of God in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. On this matter of meekness, the ESV Study Bible says this, rather than asserting themselves over others, 
in order to further their own agendas and their own strength, they trust in God and direct to direct the outcome of events. I'll read that again. Rather than asserting themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength, they trust in God to direct the outcome of events. That's a really helpful one. Because we see it in the person of the Lord Jesus. Someone who always entrusted him to judges who judges righteously, as Peter said. Even when he was facing insults and reviling, he didn't turn to join in with that. But gently accepted it. And we think of the Saviour, who even in the experience of the cross and his crucifixion, as we're told in Luke, said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now that's a meekness, and that's strength, because he knew the purposes of God. The sovereign purposes of God were over the circumstances which were so horrific, but yet he was entrusting himself to God and would not allow himself, and could not allow himself, to react in a violent and aggressive way in return. What would it achieve? It would achieve nothing. But rather his gentleness achieves everything. Because the soldiers who saw what happened afterwards could say, truly this was the Son of God. Gentleness points to the Saviour. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 11 verse 29 is one of his invitation appeals to people. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble or meek in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. No turmoil of always having to try and posture in a certain way. Or win this battle with this or that or the other or with this person. But no, a settled happiness in a gentleness that comes because we know that God is in absolute control and has our best at his heart all the time. Even through the darkest of circumstances that woke you up. And we live that out for God's glory. In Matthew 21 and verse 5, Matthew continues this theme about meekness and he quotes Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 and 10 you can go and read this for yourselves he quotes that verse as the Lord Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and he sees the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 rejoice greatly daughter Zion behold your king is coming to you righteous endowed with salvation humble and mounted on a donkey the Lord Jesus coming in as the gentle meek king king of the universe on a donkey coming in the jews were looking for this great military leader the messiah who was going to bring them to victory over the romans but here was jesus gentle and meek under the authority and the control of god what his father had said to him to do he gave himself entirely to the purpose of god so that he might bring about a greater victory which is a people's from every tribe and nation and language of tongues to give him praise. And that will be forever. The meek will inherit the earth. The Lord was most likely quoting from Psalm 37. The Lord did it often. He would take the Old Testament and fold it in to his teaching because he had come not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And he would use it and he would teach it in all of its fullness. Psalm 37 and 11, for example, Almost word for word. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. It's a psalm of David and five times in the psalm. David speaks of people inheriting the land. It was the great thing for for those people of Israel redeemed out of Egypt. 
God describes them as his son. I've brought them out of Egypt and I'm giving them the inheritance of the land. And when it came to the instruction as to the apportioning of the land, then it was clear that the land, if it was ever to be sold, was only for a short period of time and then it was to be given back. The inheritance for each person was precious to God and it was to be precious to his people. The major theme of that psalm is that God will destroy those who are wicked and in their arrogance resist God's will. They'll be banished and destroyed. But those who are humble, meek, who live under the authority of God and recognize he is their trust, he alone is their saviour, he alone is the source of all blessing, those who live under that gently live their lives and they're the ones who inherit the land. Psalm 37 and 9, the evildoers will be eliminated, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. An inheritance, as you know, comes to the son or daughter when the father or the mother dies. Back then it would have been the father, when he dies, it would have passed on to the son. It relied on the death for the inheritance to come, which is why the story of the prodigal son is such a shocker. Because when he asks for the inheritance, he's really saying, I'd rather you were dead, Dad. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, experienced the death that was due to us and the wrath of God in our place, but yet lives again. And because of his death, the inheritance that God wants for us comes to us. And we share it with the one who has died but lives again. How good to share the inheritance with the one who's gathered it all up for you but has passed on. You'd love to share it with them. You can with God. Because he has died. And he is alive again. You come to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22. Great description of the new heaven and the new earth that is described. And just like Psalm 37, if you go back home and have a chance to read that through, you'll see how it all sits together. David sees in Psalm 37 that the wicked are going to be banished by God. The arrogant who don't live under God's authority. Don't bend themselves to God at all. But trust in their own power. They're cast out of the land. The land will be given to the meek. Those who trust in God. Revelation 21 and 22. Who inherits the earth? Is those who bow themselves before the king of the universe who died on the cross for them and lives for them that he might share everything with them for eternity. This is salutary. Revelation 21 verse 8 says that those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, their part, i.e. their inheritance, will be the lake of, that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now does that not compel us then in our living to live meek and gentle lives under the authority of God but speak also with our mouths as well as our actions of the God who has come to bring us into an inheritance. It relies on us to recognise our poverty before God and to cry out for God for that repentance and belief that we might be born again and then live out the life that God has for us. To finish, Psalm 37 verse 3. David says to those who were singing this song and reading this poem, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in him and live out that goodness. Live in the land 
and cultivate faithfulness. Let's pray.